it on page 1,220, 1220. And let me read uh, just 10 verses from this last chapter. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, right through this series, we've been looking at a church under pressure. A church that could easily have given up, back down, compromise. And I don't know how you've come into church this evening. Maybe you're feeling under pressure. You feel that your faith is being tested in some way. And certainly in the coming years, the church in this country is going to be increasingly under pressure from an ever persistent secular society. We've got to be ready for that. And Peter here pulls no punches He's not afraid to challenge this church, to to instruct them, to, to encourage them, and to identify with them. But of course, Peter was never afraid of the tough call. You know, he was always, he was the first one out of the boat, wasn't he? The only one to defend Jesus in the garden, even though he missed. You know, you don't imagine he was aiming for the man's ear, do you? The one who claimed, I'm ready to die for you, Lord. The one who said at the Last Supper, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well, Lord. You know, it was all or nothing with Peter. And it's good to remember, isn't it, who wrote these books? Who wrote this book? This was the coarse, uneducated, impulsive fisherman. The fisherman who has now become a shepherd. A shepherd of God's flock, just as Jesus said he would when they stood together, do you remember, by the lake after Jesus' resurrection, the same lake where he'd called Peter uh, as a disciple years before, and the first conversation since Peter's betrayal. 
And what does he say to Peter? Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, take care of my sheep. A big moment in Peter's life. You know, the fisherman has become a shepherd. Life-changing moment for him. And here is Peter speaking as one shepherd, one pastor to another. A fellow elder, we're told. And you, you may be sitting there thinking, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not, a, I'm not a leader. But, you know, we all lead someone. We all lead someone. We all have someone who looks to us. Someone who's watching us. Someone who we have responsibility for. You know, it may be within our family. It may be among our friends. It may be in the workplace. It may be in the community. It may be in a ministry here at St. Mark's. We all have someone who is looking to us. So how should we be? How should we be? Because this is a model for us all, whether, we, whether we're young or old, whether we've been a Christian for 20 years or just two months, whether we've got a lot of responsibility or just a little. How should we be? Well, I've picked out 10 Bs in this passage, 10 Bs. And when I told Paul this, he said, I can't believe you've got 10 points, he said. Um, But anyway, I promised you they're short. 10 things Peter encourages us with. The first one, first of all, he tells us, do you see in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock. Whatever flock, whatever group of people he puts you among, be a shepherd to them. And what do shepherds do for their sheep? What do they do? Well, they protect them, don't they, from harm. They look out for them. They go after them when they're lost. They feed them. They provide for them. They love them. They know them each individually. And of course, the Bible is full, isn't it, of of this beautiful picture of the shepherd and the sheep. It's used again and again through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I think none more powerfully than than when we see Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Who looked out on the crowd, do you remember, and had compassion on them because they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He's the one who calls his own sheep by name. He's the one whose sheep know his voice. And in our passage here, we're reminded that Jesus is the chief shepherd. That's what it says in verse 4, which should actually be translated arch shepherd or arch pastor. So according to the New Testament, there's only one archbishop, and that's Jesus. I don't know what the rest are doing, but anyway, I won't get started on that because I've got a brethren background, which doesn't help me. Um, But be shepherds. That's the first thing. Secondly, our second is to be overseers, or more accurately, as it says here, be overseers who serve. Sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like it fits. Be overseers who serve. But of course, this, isn't, this is not an unfamiliar picture to us as Christians. It's all about servant leadership, not lording it over people, but serving as leaders. Now, what does that look like? Well, Peter immediately tells us quite bluntly what it doesn't look like. Not like this, he says, but like this. And he says it three times, not like this, but like this. Just look, middle of verse two. Not because you must, but because you're willing. In other words, not resentful 
of the time that you have to give or the commitment that you have to make or the responsibility that you have to take on. Not because you must, but because you're willing. You give yourself willingly. Not greedily, it says, but eagerly. Again, this is a real reminder. Make sure your motives are right. Make sure you're not chasing after the wrong things, chasing after money or prestige or power. But give yourself, serve freely because you love it, because you're called. And not to lord it over, but to be a good example. Not arrogant, not self-seeking, not domineering, but always looking to the other person. Now look, if we got just those three things right, just those three things in our daily lives, I mean, how much would change around us? If we just concentrated on those three things, how much would change in our workplace? How much would change in our relationships? How much would change in our church groups or in our peer groups? Not like this, but like this. Not about us, but about others. And I think it's very striking that, you know, those exact two words, shepherd and overseer, are used to describe Jesus back in the last verse of chapter 2. Just take a look back at it. Last verse of chapter 2 says, you, that's, that's us, you were like sheep going astray. But now, now you have returned to the shepherd, capital S, and overseer, capital O, of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I just think it's an amazing thought that we're allowed to be something like Jesus. We're meant to copy him. To be something like him. So be shepherds, be overseers. And now Peter turns to young people specifically. So listen up. He says, be submissive. Verse 5. And because, obviously, he thinks this is so important, he rams it home in verse 6. Humble yourselves. This is talking to us all now. Humble yourselves. Be humble. And, you know, I think he does this because he knows this is so counterintuitive. He knows this doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally to most of us, particularly to the young, particularly to the young who, who push themselves so hard who expect so much from themselves and from others around them. I mean, this is, this is Peter speaking. Let's remember that. This is the man who always wanted to be first, to look good. The man who made wild, extravagant promises. The man who, who did crazy, impulsive things. Peter knew the brashness of youth. And he knew how hard it was for us to be humble and submissive. He knew how easy it is to think too much of ourselves and think too much about ourselves. And it's the instinct we all have to be noticed, to be admired, to be the center of attention, to be followed, to be appreciated, to be better than others. You know, there's a few other B's for you. But Peter says, no, no, be humble. And he actually uses the phrase, clothe yourselves with humility. That's in verse 5. Or, or tie on humility. 
And the Greek word means literally to put on an apron, which may not be familiar to many of the male species here, but to put on an apron, that's what it means. And you know, it's exactly the same word used when Jesus put on an apron in the Last Supper. Peter was remembering. This is what humility looks like. The king of kings tying an apron round his waist and kneeling down to wash his disciples' dirty feet. And you know, when we delve into Peter's letter, letters, he does this all the time. All the time, he, he's remembering, making references back to his time with Jesus. And it's not always obvious to us, but even in this passage, you know, the words, the phrases he uses shows that he definitely, he's definitely thinking about his time with Jesus. He's thinking back to the Last Supper, back to the Transfiguration or the final encounter with Jesus or his denials. Or if these next two Bs, be self-controlled, be alert, he's clearly thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. And he chooses, again, he chooses his words really carefully because he uses the same words as Jesus did in the garden when he said to them, do you remember, stay awake. Stay awake, he tells them. And they didn't. And it's, it's all so poignant because Peter is passing on the lessons he's learned. Stay awake, he says. Don't fall asleep like I did. Don't be complacent. Don't be distracted. Don't get lazy. Why? Because verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, a bit of a sudden shift, hey? Suddenly, from being talking about being humble and being self-controlled, we've got a great big roaring lion in the picture. Now, where did this come from? And for some of us, it's not so much the roaring lion, but the mention of the devil. That, that's the thing that shocks us. We don't like it. We, we'd rather dismiss that bit of sort of fanciful nonsense. But this is all very real. And maybe it shouldn't be such a surprise to us that Peter uses a picture like this. After all, he started the chapter by talking about the shepherd and the sheep. And of course, the biggest threat to the sheep is a lion. And this lion is on the prowl, looking for someone to devour, we're told. So we need to know how to resist him, verse 9. And the instruction here is to stand firm. I've called it be bold. Stand firm against the devil, just as Jesus did, you remember, when he was tempted in the wilderness. And the point is, we don't meet all temptations in the same way. Uh, for example, with sexual temptation, we're told to run, you know, get out, flee. With worldly temptations, we're told simply to get our priorities right. But when it comes to Satan, the command is always the same. To resist, to stand, don't back up. You know, just look at, we know James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee. Ephesians 6, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I don't know how many of you have faced up to a lion in the wild, uh, but we probably all know that the worst thing you can do is to run. You know, you're a definite goner if you run. 
we're to stand firm. Uh, and I may not have faced a lion, uh, but I'm hoping to impress you that I have faced up to something pretty similar. I have faced up to a cheetah in the wild. Yeah, I thought that might impress you. Uh, we were with friends on a small game park in South Africa, and they just let out two cheetahs, a male and a female, into the park, and we were tracking them on foot to see, basically to see that they were doing okay because they'd been living in captivity for a while. Um, but after walking through the bush for a, uh, for a little, little bit, um, we weren't quite sure, you know, what we were doing, just trotting around after this guide. Paul asked the guide, are we following the cheetah round in circles? It certainly feels like it. And the guide uh, replied, no, the cheetah is following us round in circles. And he pointed to a rock just behind us, only about 10 yards away, a rock above head height. And there was this cheetah just staring at us. And the guide said, look, just, there was a little sweat along his brow. I did notice that. But he said, look, just stay quiet. Just don't move. And we'll just wait till he moves away. Felt like an eternity, I can tell you. But finally, this magnificent animal uh, put his, up his nose as if, you know, we really weren't worth the trouble and uh, uh, turned around and disappeared. Stand your ground. Stand firm in your faith. Don't let the enemy posing as a lion. Do you, do you see the words, like a roaring lion? Don't let him frighten you. I heard someone say this, this lion can roar all he likes, but he can't touch us. He's a lion on a leash. I like that. A lion on a leash. That's what the devil is. And do you know why a lion roars? I always thought it was something to do with sort of marking his territory. But no, it's, it's more to intimidate. It's to frighten. And of course, the devil is a great accuser. He's constantly throwing things at us, isn't he? To accuse us, to condemn us, to attack us. I wonder if you recognize some of his strategies. And when Satan attacks, he attacks what we believe. He attacks our faith. What he's trying to do is cause us to doubt And doubt causes us to back up because we start questioning, can I trust God? Is he fair? You know, why me, Lord? Why me? Now, that's a big one, isn't it? Why me? And that's why Peter here immediately counters that one big lie by saying, verse 9, you know, your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. And I've called this simply, be realistic. The enemy would like us to believe that life is unfair. In fact, what he really wants us to believe is that God is unfair. And that he's treating us differently from the rest. And the enemy feeds us with dissatisfaction and doubt. You know, God used to be good and ordered and just. And now he seems to be cruel and arbitrary and unfair. He's moved the goalposts. And it's left us confused and upset. Everything around us has changed and God seems to have changed too. And we're disappointed. We're disappointed with life and quite frankly, we're disappointed with God too. God should be making all things well. Not causing, not not allowing pain and suffering. And we can almost convince ourselves that God owes us something. C.S. Lewis put it like this. 
We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was such that we might say at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Now, if that's where we're coming from, then when bad things happen, when our happiness is shaken for whatever reason, our world will be shaken. And it's true, isn't it, that we live in a society that rushes to alleviate pain. We're taught to escape pain or fear or silence. And as Christians, we need to know where we go, what we turn to when we're in pain. We need to know the warning signs of the things we automatically uh, turn to when things get too much. You know, is it mindless TV? Is it alcohol? Is it food? Is it shopping? Is it endless activity? Is it work? Where do we turn to? We need to heed the warning signs. Don't run to them. Run to him instead. That's what we're told here. Run to him, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him. Not just some things, not just the big things, everything. Throw it all at him. You know, cast them all. That's what this picture is. Like casting, I can't do this well because I'm not a fisherman, but this is what they do, isn't it? They throw the line out. Cast it out. Suffering can convince us we need to look out for ourselves. But Peter tells us we don't need to do that because Jesus promises to look out for us. And probably for every one of us here, to some degree or another, there's something that's hurt our heart, something that's broken us, something that's caused pain or confusion. Be patient. Peter says, you will be restored, verse 10. Be patient. When? When we ask. And the answer is, after you have suffered for a little while. And I'm afraid it's probably not the answer we want. And I'm afraid we can't skip over those eight words. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if verse 10 read like this. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. But it doesn't. It says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So the thing is, if you're suffering now, don't think that God has abandoned you. Because the God of all undeserved kindness, the God of grace, promises these things. He promises that he will restore us. He will restore those who've been broken. He'll make firm those who've been shaken. He will strengthen those who feel they've failed. And he will establish a rock under those who feel like they're sinking. That's what he promises. And that's why we can be strong and firm and steadfast. And finally, be encouraged. Because the whole purpose of this book, Peter says, is to encourage us. Verse 12. I have written, he says, to encourage and testify that this, that this is the true grace of God. 
A grace that goes on being true, even in suffering. A grace that will take us into eternity, where those who have suffered for a little while here on earth will receive the crown of glory in heaven, verse 4. The crown that will never fade. So I don't know which, which of those ten, which of those ten B's you need to take away with you. I would suggest don't try and take them all. <laughs> That's not the point. Which one? Maybe just pick out one right now. Pick out one that you feel God is prompting you with. Which one of those do you need to be? Which one do you need to help change things this week? To change things in your workplace? To change things in your relationships? To change things in your ministry? Which one do you need? Let's just stand for a moment and as we just look at them and maybe the band comes up. Let's just ask God to help us here. Which B do we need to be reminded of? Do we need do we need to come back to that vision God first gave us to be shepherds, to be people who care, to be those who who gather others. And if we've got a group that we care for, maybe God's bringing us back to that place, saying, yeah, I want to help you to care for that group, to really care for them. Or maybe we need to be, come back to that place of servanthood, of servant leadership. Maybe somewhere along the line we've got it wrong. And we know that we've been, we've been lording it over instead of serving under. God just wants to bring us back to that place of saying, I want to teach you how to serve. Or this whole thing of being submissive, being humble. Maybe it's even frightened us in the past. If I'm humble, if I, if I, if I show this sort of humility, I'm just going to be trampled on. And God says, no, this is a beautiful thing. This is a God thing. This is a really attractive thing. When we are truly able to think of others rather than ourselves, putting others first. Be humble. Or to be alert. Maybe some of us have got complacent. Maybe even in just these last few weeks or months, we know that we've been distracted. Other things have taken your place, Lord, and we want to be watchful again, alert to your spirit. Or for some of us, that call to be bold. And maybe the enemy has been coming in and he's been the accuser. There's been something that he's been attacking us with. And we need to learn that thing of standing, standing firm. Firm and steadfast against the enemy. Or maybe we're one of those people who is hurting 
at the moment. And we don't understand. And we feel lost. But God is saying it's okay. It's okay. I know this one, he says. And I'm with you. And in the light of eternity, it's only for a little while. And his promise is that he will restore. So as the band just plays quietly, let's just, let's just ask God, which of those, Lord, which of those do you want to just lay on my heart as I enter this week?